Captain Cook boldly. Captain Cook boldly. Before I start this episode, I need to profile myself because I don't want you to accidentally mistake me for an indigenous person, for example, you know, because um, this is an episode on Captain Cook and um, you, know, you might get confused as to why it is largely complimentary towards Captain Cook, you know, you need to know who I am. To know why that's the case, if, was, if this was, uh, if I was an indigenous person, this might be a much shorter episode. Um, now, I don't want you to uh, mistake me for someone who hates all things British, you know, a British, Celtic, British, Anglo-Celtic sort of person who, um, you know, is self-loathing as such in terms of, you know, my heritage. I don't want you to mistake me for one of those guys. Uh, in which case, this episode will probably go for four times longer than it does. Um, and it would be uh, very uncomplimentary, most likely. Okay, so that's that. Now, I don't want you to mistake me for a Chinese person either. Yeah, because, in which case, you know, I might say, Captain Who? <laughs> that would be an even shorter episode. Captain Cook would be pretty much irrelevant to the average Chinese person living in Australia. And, and the Chinese people living in Australia are numerous now. Yeah? Like if I went to Box Hill and, uh, and just walked the streets on Captain Cook Day, you know, 250th day since he landed here and said, what are your thoughts about Captain Cook? You know, if you did that in my suburb, you'd get a lot of opinions. You know, you'd go, oh yeah, Captain Cook, he's a bastard, or he's fantastic, or yeah, it makes me proud to be Australian, you know? Um, but if you did that in Box Hill, you know, because that's, a, that's sort of a Chinatown, um, yeah, it'd be Captain Who? <laughs> Captain Who? H-U, you know? Um, and um, now, but I need to profile Oh, myself. Yeah. Um, just so you know where I'm coming from. Uh, am I, I don't know why I'm vaguely complimentary of Captain Cook. Yeah, look at that. I, I think technically he's a racist. Yeah. In the 21st century sense. Yeah. Look, he's the most racist person in the world. Yeah, except for everyone else in his time. <laughs> That's that old. That Churchill? Yeah, that joke. Yeah. Um, no, hang on, my phone's ringing. For the first time ever, I'm, I'm on a different device. Oh, here we go. Uh, no, I'll get back to you in a second. Actually, I've done what I wanted to do. Uh, I'll take you for a tour of my shed, which will have the effect of profiling me, because last night I was in my shed and I spoke a little bit of audio, which um, took a person on a tour of my shed. I love shed but let's do that uh, just a couple of snippets of audio and then we'll get on to Captain Cook and I've 
got a photo of um, one of the roulettes. Huge picture. I got that off my dad. Um, and I've got bits and pieces everywhere. This has nothing to do with Captain Cook. I've uh, got a book on Tutankhamen there. And a globe, an atlas of the world, a globe. Um, and a few bits and pieces of Essendon things. I've got a cricket ball from my cousin over in London, which is um, a Lord's cricket ball. He was at Lord's and he got me that. Oh, I didn't expect to talk about this, but I am. I've got a, a big photo, a big picture from Venice um, that um, was my grandmother's, and I've got that up on the wall too. And I've got a 19, you know, 1920s or 1910s um, photo of a great great grandfather outside the trades hall in Melbourne. Uh, what else have I got here? Um, oh, a big picture of one of my brothers in an XY, you know, 351 Falcon, um, you know, fr mounted, um, framed, uh, doing a huge burnout in the desert in Western Australia. Um, and I've got my cricket bat and I've got a football and you know, Aussie rules football, of course. And I've got my big fat Mac, which is my favorite book. It's right on my desk. Um, I've got Charles Darwin's letters, you know, the Beagle letters. Um, and um, in this, um, in this um, my big fat Mac is my Macquarie dictionary. Um, it's the full version. Fifth edition, um, I like to leaf through a dictionary. You know, I, don't, I don't like going on to the online dictionaries. You know, I, I, need, I need the paper. <laughs> I've got an old, I've got, you know, from, from those old trains, the Red Rattlers, I've got a, uh, um, a uh, the rack, you know, that you used to put your luggage up on. We still had Red Rattlers when I was young. And I've also got one fewer books on Captain Cook in this shed. Uh, I, I once had three books, but then I had a tradie come in one day and he said, oh, wow, Captain Cook, can I, can I, uh, and he, oh, he just admired it. And what could I do? So... He ended up getting that one. I need to. I need to somehow get my hands on it again. I lost that Captain Cook book. Um, uh, now I've had three Captain Cook books, and I, I've only read two. Um, there was one called a Seaman's Seaman or something, and another one by an ancestor uh, of Captain Cook's. No, no. Ancestor, a relation anyway. Um, who? Um, and I think that was called something like. Going where no man has ever gone before, you know, something like that. No, well, Englishman. Um, oh, now, what's that famous Captain Cook saying? When uh, going further than any man has gone before. Uh, hang on, Cook. Further. I didn't read that Seaman's Seaman uh, book. Further than Captain Cook. I better write Captain Cook. Just a second. Captain Cook, further. Boldly, I remember boldly. Just a second. Oh, I should have Googled that. Boldly. Hang on. Captain Cook, boldly. I'll get it for you in a second. Captain Cook, 
boldly. Captain Cook boldly. Oh my goodness. Huh. Boldly going where Captain Cook has gone before. Someone, oh, there it is, Tony Horwitz. And I don't think he was related to Captain Cook, but he retraced Captain Cook's uh, footprints, you know. Um, all right, so that, that's it. Um, oh, well, you know, he's, um, where he sailed. Um, and I had another book. That was that one. And I had another one that I really... Oh, yeah, that, that was that one. Tony Horowitz, and there was some another one by some woman, I think, um, who had a, who was related. Anyway, there's all these Captain Cook books. Now, there's one I, th- I I was listening on the ABC not too long ago. There was um, there's one out now, or will soon be out. I'm sure it's out now already because it's Captain Cook Day today, the 250th anniversary. And I'm a bit of a Captain Cookophile, you know. Um, yeah, I, I have all these people that I, I, you know, get obsessed with. You know, Little Richard, Captain Cook, um, the Ethiopian Entra- Emperor Tedros. Yeah, um, usually left field. Um, yeah, I, I, I get obsessed with people every now and again. Okay, um, but Captain Cook's one of them, and uh, Peter Fitzsimmons. He's hook, line, and sinker for Captain Cook as well, and he's written a book. See, I didn't get, I didn't get around to that. I could have done that. Um, Oh, look, Peter Fitzsimmons, he would be a better writer than me and he's better at researching than me. He's actually a professional writer uh, these days. I think he was a rugby player at one stage. Uh, but these people know how to write books and I don't. You know? I just know how to ramble on on uh, a podcast. Anyway, so uh, one of the books I haven't got on, on Captain Cook in this shed is... That latest book by Peter Fitzsimmons. Now, he wrote an article today. I noticed it in passing while I was working today. I haven't read it yet, but I'll go and put the kids to bed right now um, and uh, and then come back and, with you know, I haven't read the article. I did hear him speak about Captain Cook on the ABC when he was spruiking his book, and that would have been about a couple of months ago. Um, and, you know, I liked what he said. Of course you don't agree with everything you hear. You know, I've got a slightly spin, different spin on Captain Cook than he has. You know, all I thought I did have, you know, based on what I heard that day. Uh, I haven't read his book. I think I'm going to get my wife to get on her little, you know, what is it? Her eBay or whatever it is and, and buy me my missing Captain Cook book. And also this one as well. I might tell her, just buy every book on Captain Cook that you can find. Ah, now I have got one book uh, that I got when I was seven here. Actually, it was a series, and I can't remember what it's called. And my great-grandmother gave me that one and um, when I was seven. So that was a long time ago. Uh, that would have been 1970. And she's, she's written in the front, you know, and that's got a lot about Captain Cook in it too. But it was about the origins, you know, Our Heritage. That's what it was called. There was a book called Our Heritage. You know, we had a slightly different idea of what Captain Cook meant and all that sort of stuff back in 1970. Oh, look, 1970, 71, you know, I often think 1971 is a hinge moment. Yeah, because in 1967, um, yeah, look, our idea of Captain Cook in 1970 
was already different than our idea of Captain Cook had been 50 years before that. In fact, because, you know, we, uh, we, had, you know, we, we, we created this club, you know, called Australia. You know, it's a club. It's not, it's not, a, uh, it's not a continent or an island or a, a land or anything, really. The, uh, you know, this thing we call Australia, I, I think it's best described as a social club, you know, uh, defined by a constitution and all that sort of thing. And there's this landmass that we live on, and on that landmass there's this social club called Australia. And there's also these all these other social clubs, which are all the indigenous nations of Aust- of Australia, as we call it loosely, you know. Um, so I, th- I find it really easy to think of it in that way, and it makes a lot of things that you need to discuss really easy to discuss. Yeah. Um, Oh, what's one example? Um, you know, um, should in you know, um, in 1910, should Indigenous people have been given the vote? You know, um, and there's an argument to say, well, you know, another way of asking that question is there was a social club in 1910 that was only 10 years old that we called, you know, the Australia. You know, the um, uh, 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 now um, there are also other social clubs in Australia, um, you know, indigenous mobs here, there and everywhere. And if you, if you kind of, if you can't, if you're kind of saying that you think indigenous people should have got the vote in 1910, for a start, you'd have to say which mobs, you know, let's, let's just pick a mob that, um, saw themselves as owning their own land, not owning, but, you know, in the indigenous sense, belonging to their land. You know, some, 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 um, indigenous mob back in 1910 who really hadn't had much contact with Europeans yet. All right, we've got this social club called Australia, you know, administered from, I think it was Melbourne then, where I am now. I think that, you know, now, uh, you know, we moved to Canberra later on. Uh, so, um, so we've got, the, uh, we, we might have gone to Sydney then, Canberra, I can't remember. Anyway, so this this social club called Australia, you know, and within that social club, you know, you can, people vote for who the leader of the club is and all that sort of stuff, and that's the Prime Minister and all that sort of thing. Now, you've got this other club, which is a mob of Indigenous people um, somewhere. Who cares where, you know? Just pick a mob. All right. We'll just say in Arnhem Land. How does that sound? All right. Now, there are some people in the 21st century now that sort of say that um, that the social club that was Australia should have uh, got, you know allowed or invited those indigenous people in Arnhem land into the into their social club into the Australian social club you know um, but I'm inclined to think no they probably wouldn't want to they probably wouldn't want to be in that club you know to give someone the vote is to give that person civil rights within the social club that is a given nation you know civil rights means you become part of the club. You know, um, in America, in the United States of America, in um, African Americans tend to want civil rights. They want to be part of the club. But, you know, the average Indigenous person in, in 1910 wouldn't have wanted civil rights. They already had Indigenous rights, which is an entirely different thing. You know, and um, in the 1960s, you know, just when I got this book, the Heritage of Australia, 
or a heritage of Australia. No, it is our heritage in Australia. Now, our heritage, that book, pretty much that does describe our heritage, you know, the heritage of people in the Australia Club. Yeah. And our heritage goes back thousands of years, but it doesn't go back thousands of years here. It goes back thousands of years back in Europe, but it's still an ancient and deep culture. You know, it's just as ancient and deep as Indigenous culture in Australia. You know, uh, it's just that it started in a different place, you know. So our heritage really does reach back into Europe. You know, the, the, those books were... Um, you know, when we say our heritage, you know, we're talking about, you know, the Magna Carta, for example, is part of our heritage in Australia. You know, but um, when was that? 1200 and something, you know. And not on this dirt here, but it's still part of our heritage. You know? And I, so I think it's good um, to think of Australia not as a landmass, you know. Otherwise, um, after the first day, after, you know, the day after the first fleet landed, our culture was only one day old. That doesn't make sense because we know it was a, it was fully fledged already. You know, an enormous body of laws, language, uh, habits, culture, you know, traditions. After day one, when we landed in Australia, you know, we people in the Australia Club, it wasn't a, a new country. It was an old culture. We, oh, excuse me. Oh, that'll have to do for now. It was nothing. Uh, uh, my whole shed shook. Now, my shed is down at the bottom of the garden. We've kind of got two backyards. We've got the, the, the first backyard behind the house, and then we've got this huge hedge type of arrangement and a tunnel that goes through the hedge. And... Um, and and then this sort of second backyard and I've got my shed right down the bottom of the backyard so I'm miles away from the house I'm actually uh, you know like I'm, I'm I'm like some sort of fairy at the bottom of the garden down here uh, so I'm all alone and it's raining and cold and all that sort of stuff so I wasn't expecting anyone down here and somehow my shed shook which is pretty freaky um, we've got, and, and my daughter has got a chook shed next door. You know, she's got her chooks, which is, um, used to be her cubby house. Um, but we've had, you know, for, for lockdown, coronavirus, um, we've built, we, we've converted it into a chook shed so that, because we have to find things for the kids to have and do during lockdown. So, you know, we're all getting concessions. I'm actually getting a second shed. My wife's ordering it. On her onliney things, I have never bought anything online. Now, I'm old-fashioned. I like to leaf through my big fat Mac. Uh, um, uh, so I'm getting a second shed next to this shed, and then there's another shed that's my wife's shed. Now I've got this old old cupboard in the corner of this shed, and you know, my my son he shares this shed with me. We've got two desks in here, and. I'm, um, and we tell the girls that there's spiders in here. You know, um, that's better than a lock. So what I'm planning to do, but I'll never do it, you know, is um, drill a hole between the two sheds, a secret. You know, because that's good, because my son's only eight. And um, kids love that sort of stuff. And I want to make it so that he has to crawl through the... You know, open the cupboard door in the corner here and crawl through 
and end up in a cupboard on the other side in the other shed and then open the cupboard door on that side and he's in the shed and that's his secret passageway. You know, that sort of stuff lights up a child's imagination and, um, uh, yeah, gee, I still might do it. Um, anyway, my shed shook just now uh, and then I, you know, tentatively opened the door uh, but nothing out there except the rain. Uh, I actually can't even explain that. Um, you know, maybe, you know... No, I can't explain it. <laughs> All right, so that's that. Look, this episode is about Captain Cook. And believe it or not, I've already talked about him a bit and his place in our history. And uh, I will come back and read that Peter Fitzsimmons article, preparatory to reading his actual book, which I'll do one day. Uh, and, um, and, 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 and the thought I will leave myself with, because I'm the only one who listens to my uh, podcast, and even I don't listen to it, you know, um, the thought I will leave nobody is this. Um, our idea of uh, what Captain Cook's landing back in 1770, on this day, 250 years ago, uh, uh, what that means to us is changing. I'm sure of that much you know, over the centuries. Um, you know, after the first, you know, on the 50-year anniversary, well, that'd be 1770, that'd be 1820, we would have had one idea of, you know, uh, what Captain Cook meant, Captain Cook's landing meant to the fledgling colonies of Australia back then. It wasn't even a nation then. The Australia Club hadn't been created yet. Australia, as we know it now, didn't exist in 1820, you know. So what we had then in 1820 was still British colonies, you know. Okay, and we didn't really even have self-determination. That was to come in about 1850 when we started to have our own, you know, uh, representatives. Yeah. Uh, it was being run afar, run from afar, this, the colonies. They were being run, being run from afar back in England and what would have been the minister of the colonies? You know, I don't know what it was called, but there would have been a minister in the British Parliament who was the minister of the colonies over here in Australia. Who And before that, that position would have been the minister in charge of the colonies in America uh, um, before they got kicked out of America and had to come here. That's the only reason we came here, you know. You know we weren't just casually... Um, we, were, you know, we didn't come here just to casually empire build. Um, we, we actually didn't even want to come here. You know, uh, we were sending all our, um, we were sending all our, uh, our convicts to America before that. I think mainly to Maryland and somewhere else, um, Virginia, you know. Um, and they became indentured labourers over there, you know, the convicts of England. And England was merrily sending them all over there, but then... Um, England kind of accidentally got into a war with the colonists over in America and lost yeah, and had nowhere to send their um, convicts. This is England. You know, and um, looked around and said, oh, there was that place Captain Cook suggested, you know, uh, as a, you know, as one of many places he suggested as a likely sort of place to put convicts, for example. Well, Captain Cook wasn't that specific, I don't think. No, he wasn't, surely. Um, uh, look, Captain Cook was well dead. He was dead before there was any, you know, before the idea 
to come here to Australia was even had. As far as Captain Cook was concerned, we were going to keep just, uh, you know, we, the British Empire, whatever, was just going to keep sending convicts and, you know, people across to America, you know. Um, We only came here as a, um, uh, out of desperation because we lost the colonies in America, you know. Okay. And um, to a very large extent, um, England, you know, the very idea of England was not a very secure culture back then. Um, England, you know, if I put my, if I was to put money on it, in 1777, you know, which was the year in between, what, American Independence Day and, oh, no, not, you know, sorry, somewhere in between 1776 when America got its independence and 1788 when the first um, settlers came here, um, or the convicts came here and all that sort of stuff, and the military, um, yeah, who was more likely to survive, England or the Indigenous peoples of Australia? Well, the Indigenous peoples were in better shape. Yeah, they, they, um, on the horizon was Napoleon and all that sort of thing. England was on the verge of being wiped out. England was not in a very strong position, really. Yeah, coming, you know, after 1788, when the, when England came to Australia, it already lost a war. To America, it was in great danger of losing wars to France. Um, you know, England could have been knocked off any time. You know, the England that came to Australia uh, was just trying to you know, start up a penal colony for starters, and was not at all in a strong position, really, in my opinion. You know, as far as I can tell, you know, they got knocked off by America, didn't they? The Americans, or what were to become the Americans, and really, it was a miracle they weren't knocked off by the French too. You know. And there was a, what were those wars before then, you know? Because people like Captain Cook and um, our earlier governors, they were all part of wars, world wars, the world wars of their times. Was it the Thirty Year War and all that sort of stuff? Brutal in um, throughout Europe. Um, you know, like our earlier governors were kind of um, veterans of those sorts of wars. You know, and Captain Cook was in the navy and all that sort of stuff. Anyway, look, England did have did have a good navy, you know, but. Napoleon could have knocked England off easy, you know. And, um, you know, a, a lot of people think Captain Cook was just casually cruising about, you know, looking for opportunities to empire build. Well, you know, England did want to empire build and all that sort of stuff, but uh, it wasn't as casual as that. Um, there was a good deal of survival at play, you know. A lot of England's thinking was, uh, how are we even going to survive? Not just empire building. Are we? Are we even going to survive Napoleon, for example? You know, um, and before that, you know, are we ever going? Are we even going to supply, uh, survive the Spanish Armada or the Thirty Years' War and all that sort of stuff? Um, and after that, are we even going to survive the Battle of Britain? And you know, there's, there's all these moments, these existential threats for England. England's not. You know, look, there was a massive period where England, you know, the sun never set on England, or, you know, in Queen Victoria's time in the 1800, you know, late 1800s, yes, there was that. But that has, that, you know, England's kind of um, feeling of great power and dominance during the late 1800s, you know, um, that wasn't the norm for England all through its history. And when Australia was, um, you know, when they sent convicts to Australia, this wasn't one of, you know, this wasn't England at anything like the might and power that England was in a little bit later, about 100 years later, in, in, 19, in 1870. You know, in 1770, we're talking a different England. Okay. 
Anyway, so, obviously I'm just yakking. Um, I'm supposed to be inputting my son to bed. Look, I will do that. And when I come out... Oh, that's what that's the thought I was going to have just before I go on. Um, yes, what Captain Cook meant in 1820 on the 50th anniversary of his landing to the early colonists was one thing. You know, he was just, you know, he was just one of their greatest sailors. Yeah, you know, one of their greatest navigators. The British. It was the Britain, the British who were here. Yeah, you know, my ancestors were the British. Uh, actually, none of my ancestors were even here in 1820. Uh, all of my ancestors pretty much came before 1850, but not by 1820. Not one of them had been here, was here by it. Um, so I only start landing, you know, my ancestors. I only start joining the club um, in 1841, really, which is when my first direct ancestors come, came. And, um, and you know, an uncle came before that, uh, an uncle of one of my direct ancestors, or, uh, you know, a brother of one of my direct ancestors. Uh, came in 1830, you know, when Melbourne was still tense. Uh, now, his name was William Overton, you know, because his sister, who was my um, great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. Um, now, this William Overton, you can Google him, but he was a baker in Collins Street. Uh, he had a bakery on the corner of Collins and Swanston, I believe, where the city square is now. And he was the first person to introduce... He introduced gas to Melbourne, which is pretty weird now, sitting in Melbourne, you know, holding that knowledge in my head, thinking, introducing gas to Melbourne. Well, now Melbourne's like a city of, what, three or four million people. You know, and you, and you look at the city and you go, oh, all, those, all those skyscrapers. And I say, oh, yeah, I've got to cast my mind back. And, you know... There was a time when our ancestors, well, well, the many people in Australia who have ancestors at that time, um, 1830s to 18, you know, 1835 onwards, um, you know, when it was just tents and dirt tracks. You know? oh, my goodness, we've come a long way. Now, Indigenous people can go back even further. You know, like I find that fairly freaky, you know, that I can trace back to when Melbourne was tents. But... The average Indigenous person around here in in Wiridjuri territory, I shouldn't say that, but my son's teacher has trouble um, pronouncing Wurundjeri, and even I probably don't know how to say it properly, but she says Wiridjuri, you know, like didgeridoo. Um, oh, look, you're tempted to sort of um, unmute the microphone, you know, because we parents can hear all the teachers these days because we're in lockdown due to coronavirus, you know, and, um, and we can hear the teachers. <laughs> and uh, we're not supposed to get on there and uh, put our hand up, as it were, you know, because um, it's all remote schooling now. Uh, but the kids don't actually go to school. It's all done online. Um, anyway, the, Wirid the Wiridjuri people, um, you know, like if I was a Wiridjuri person um, here in Melbourne, reflecting up on Captain Cook and... You know, and reflecting, wow, this is... Amazing. Now, he can... That guy, that Wurundjeri guy, he can sit and say, wow, look at that city. You know, you can look at the skyline of Melbourne, um, which is actually represented on that um, poster I mentioned before that I had mounted, you know, one one two thousand, um, a new century dawns. And I'm looking at Melbourne in that picture, the front page of The Age, which I mentioned earlier, it is so much smaller than it is even now. Now, that was only in 2000. It's 2020 now, and the city is at least double or triple the size of that, that which I'm looking at on, the, on my wall here. 
Melbourne has exploded. It looks like Hong Kong now. All right. Anyway, the Wurundjeri guy, he, he's got one up on me. He can um, say, wow, look at this city. There was a time when my people were just sitting here and, you know, just had a corroboree. You know, right where the city square is, you know. Like I can say, sort of say, oh, I've got this ancestor, you know, like it was a brother of my... Well, when I say it's the brother of my ancestor, um, when she came, you know, because we've got all the shipping records, um, when she came, that's where she stayed, you know. Her brother went and collected her down at um, whatever dock it is. Oh, I know what it's called, but I forget. Um, uh, the Turning Basin, that's what it's called, down on the Yarra. And, and um, I've got the shipping records. And I know that she actually spent her first night where the city square is now. Um, I wish we had have held on to that block of land. <laughs> be worth billions. <laughs> but you don't get to do that. I think he, I think he introduced glass to Melbourne too. Or, or, you know, he part owned the first glassworks in Melbourne as well. Look, he was very enterprising. That ancestor of mine, I wish I was. Um... So gas and glass, you know. But this Wurundjeri guy, he can go back further than me. He can go back 60,000, 70,000, 80,000 years, whatever it was. He can, and he can sort of sit here and he can sit where the city square is and he can say, oh, my head is spinning because I'm thinking how many generations I go back here. You know, like I could say I go back, you know, seven generations or something. He can say I go back 5,000 generations, you know, which would be absolutely head spinning. But not unique, because I go back 5,000 generations too. Just somewhere else, not here. You know, my culture is just as deep as his. Now, I'll go inside and put my... You know, I've got to read Harry Potter to my son. Now, that's part of our deep, deep mythology. You know, we in Australia, and by that I mean the Australian club, the Indigenous people have a deep culture. But so do we, and it's represented tonight for me by the Harry Potter books. You know... All the wizards and fairies and goblins and everything else going on in those books is reaches deep into my mythology. You know, because we are an ancient and deep culture ourselves. We Europeans who are here, we, you know, Celtic, Germanic Celts, we Anglo sort of Saxon Celts. We've got a mythology and, you know, all this sort of stuff, very, every bit as deep as what the Indigenous people have got. But we brought ours here and they had theirs here already. But, you know, they, those two cultures, you know, they're both equally deep and incredible. Um, we never actually dropped all that culture, you know. We Anglo-Celtic, you know, peoples. Um, you know, you, you often think, oh, we're a Judeo-Christian sort of culture, you know. But a huge amount of the ancient Germanic and Nordic and Celtic um, culture before the Greeks and the Romans got stuck into us, you know, and Greco-fied us and Anglo-fied us and Saxonified us and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, and before the bloody Semites um, biblified us, <laughs> you know, before we became Judeo-Christian, uh, do you know Judeo-Christianity, um, Christianity, uh, sought to wipe out our ancient mythology and culture we you know germanic celts uh we anglo celts you know uh, christianity sought to wipe that out and it has been a spectacular failure you know my children know so much about wizards and goblins and you know all those sorts of things and fairies at the bottom of the garden down here like me in my shed you know 
my kids know so much. You know, The Ring, you know, Lord of the Ring, um, all that stuff. Enid Blyton, Harry Potter, Maleficent, you know that movie? Um, the other movie, Angelina Jolie, you know. Um, a whole lot of other movies, um, too many to mention. Most Hollywood movies, nearly every Disney movie, you know, nearly every Disney movie has got... Um, princesses in Germanic-looking or Nordic-looking castles and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you know, the ancient Germanic and Celtic ways... Oh, look, those, those were less ancient. Yes, all right, they came after Greece and Rome, really, those castles. But you know what I'm saying? Um, all the mythology, you know, that goes back and back and back, Stonehenge and all that sort of stuff, our culture and all that sort of stuff reaches back and back and back, and Captain Cook is part of that. So he means a lot to, you know, he's a, he's, he's a significant moment in all of that culture. He's a huge moment. And when we landed here in 1788, we were a fully-fledged culture, which we eventually came to call Australia, you know, the nation-state of Australia, you know. But it's a massive, it's not a new, you know, we are not a new child, you know, we're not, not a child of, a child of England, you know. We are, a, we are England and Ireland and now increasingly lots of other cultures as well. All right, so I'll go inside, um, but I'll just leave us with that point that Captain Cook meant one thing um, at the 50th anniversary of his landing to the people who, to we Europeans especially, and to the Indigenous people, you know, he's, he's a bit of a scourge, really, the Indigenous people, you know. Um, he shot the first Indigenous person he met practically, Captain Cook. Look, he didn't, you know. Um... He tasered him. My goddaughter. My goddaughter put it that way. Um, I, I thought that was brilliant. She said, tasered. And I said, what do you mean? Because I had described to her that, you know, what Captain Cook had done. He was trying, he's saying, get back. No, don't approach, you know, to the Indigenous person. And the, you know, slightly, you know, the Indigenous person was still um, insisting that Captain Cook rack off. And Captain Cook said, no, you back off. And Captain Cook loaded up his musket with with buckshot, you know, and, and shot him in the legs, you know. Um, but the guy ran away, you know. So often you see, especially I've seen some Indigenous people saying, Captain Cook shot one of our people, you know, and they just leave it at that. And I just know most people reading that would say, the bastard, what a murderer. But it was buckshot, you know. Even I've been shot by buckshot in my life. You know, I've, I remember um, I was duck shooting, you know, back in the days when that was okay, uh, when I was young, uh, up on the Murray, and you know, I got some, I got some pellets of uh, off a shotgun coming off the water, and I got that in the legs too, and it stung. I know how that feels. Look, the buckshot he got, I don't know whether it stung much more than that, but he frightened the guy away, he frightened the indigenous person away. But you, you know, you do get these um, mischievous people, you know, and they just put it up there. They put a headline. Captain Cook, ha, he shot the first Indigenous person he saw when he came to Australia. And you say he's a good bloke? You know, but, well, he tasered him. You know, well, which is pretty nasty. Look, it's a huge story, you know. But, anyway, Captain Cook after 50 years, you know. Uh, after 100 years, 100 years after Captain Cook um, landed here, well... We would have had a different idea of Captain Cook by then. We were, we were starting to um, coalesce as uh, an independent-ish nation by then. 
we had our own, you know, our, you know, we had our own members sitting here making decisions for us. You know, here, people here deciding our fate rather than people back in England. We still weren't a nation state, you know, but that that was a hundred years after, um, and we'd had the gold rush by then too. So Melbourne here, where I sit. It was starting to explode or then, too. There was an explosion then. In fact, we were the richest place in the world per capita during the gold rush. Um, so, you know, we've got a different sort of... Uh, different. You know, our, our identity is growing. We've got self-determination. That's what we've got by 100 years. Um, you know, that would be 1870. Um, and my footy team um, is only two years off being formed. Essendon, where I'm sitting right now, 1872... And Aussie Rules Football. Aussie Rules Football's already been going for a while. Aussie Rules Football as a code, you know, with coded laws, is older than any other football code in the world, I think. You know, older than soccer. Soccer codified itself for grown-ups, you know, to play. Major League and all that sort of stuff. After we coded our competition. And we very much predate American football. But, you know, my football team um, sprang into existence in 1872. So that was two years after the 100-year anniversary of Captain Cook. Okay. Um, And then, you know, then 19... And, well, when the next anniversary came, the 150th, that would be 1920. Um, uh, So... Uh, we've just come out of the war by then, and we've got a, uh, you know, and I think we were desperate. You know, there was a resurgence of um, British feeling, but we'd also had Gallipoli and all that sort of stuff. Look, there was an, um, and we'd also declared ourselves a nation by then. It was a whole new Australia by then, and we were one, you know, more step um, further away from England by then. Um, you know, we were equally as old as England. As a culture, we weren't a new culture, you know. We were, I, I liken it to the Shiraz vine. There's a Shiraz vine in Nagambi here in Victoria that's the oldest Shiraz vine in the world, All right? Now, it came here. It was a cutting of the, what was the oldest Shiraz vine over there in France. I always thought Shiraz was from, um, you know, Shiraz was a region in Turkey, Syrah, you know, but I've, I've since found out it was in France for some reason. And, um, and um, you know, but then that oldest vine in the world um, died over in France. And now the cutting that's here is the oldest vine in the world. So it's a very old grapevine here in Nagambi, in Victoria, where I live. Um, the old Shiraz vine, you know, it's not a new vine, it's an old vine. And we're like that. We're an old, old, old culture. Just like the indigenous culture is an old, old, old culture. Go back and back and back and back. Now, 1920, but, you know, we're, we, we've, we've parted ways from England by now. Yeah. We're not a child of England. We're a separate entity side by side. You know, if two brothers, you know, like my ancestors, you know, you had one brother go to America, one brother come to Australia, and one brother stay in England or Ireland, you know. Well, which one of those brothers has more claim to his ancient culture. Well, they've all got an equal claim. None of them is a child of the other brother. They're brothers. They're not children. Of you know, The brother that stayed in England or Ireland isn't the father or the mother, you know, the mother country, um, of the two brothers that left. The two brothers that left feel every bit as owning 
the ancient culture as they do the mythology, the fairies at the bottom of the garden, all that sort of stuff. And here I am sitting in my shed. Okay, then after 200 years, the 200 year anniversary, well, I'm around by then. You know, 1970. Yeah, and we'd moved along even by then. And we had invited the indigenous people into our club by then. And they had accepted by and large. And they had accepted and they said, yep, well, we'd like the vote. I think that was a mistake on some levels, you know, philosophically. Practically, it was a good idea. But philosophically, you know, I'm more into Indigenous rights as a concept than I am into civil rights. You know, I don't think the, um, I don't think the Indigenous people, you know, was a great idea to get the vote because it wasn't actually a gift, you know. It was actually a concession to agree to get the vote if you're an Indigenous person in uh, the nation-state of Australia, is you're kind of giving up a little bit, you know what I mean, by joining the other mob. Uh, I kind of didn't, I kind of, you know. Anyway, that's it. That's 1970. Now we're up to 2020. Now, after 1970, Australia moved, you know, uh, evolved into a new version of itself, um, the Australia Act. Was that 18, 1989 or something like that? Um, you know, and we changed the rules for ourselves and we are now a constitutional monarchy uh constitutional monarchy in which the queen has no power over us at all which i think is just dandy just fine you know the queen cannot determine anything about how we do our business now and if i had my say i'd um say let's keep that forever you know and even when she dies let's keep her on because she's not having a say anyway so let's keep her memory on you know, we would have a dead queen who lives forever, you know, an immortal queen, that old, you know, that used to be a really good concept back in the ancient times, you know, an immortal queen. And Queen Elizabeth II could reign forever here, even if, you know, Prince Charles becomes King Charles in England, we can just say, no, we don't want him, we'll keep Queen Elizabeth II, thank you. Yeah, that's the way I'd go. You know, I wouldn't want to go for a republic myself because there's too much danger of it slipping into something like America's got, which is an absolute disaster, um... I think I won't read Peter Fitzsimmons' article after all uh, because I thought I wasn't going to have any ideas for making this episode, but I think I've said enough. You know, I was going to get some inspiration from someone off lo- on, on, on the computer, you know, read Peter Fitzsimmons' article um, and find out what he's got to say about what Captain Cook means to us in 2020. Actually, his um, headline said what he should mean to us which I yeah, didn't think much of that headline. And no, Peter Fitzsimmons, you know, don't tell everyone else what you think Peter, uh, Captain Cook, Peter Cook. I'm thinking of Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. I love Peter Cook. <laughs> um, Captain Cook. Um, Peter yeah, Fitzsimmons. Um, I saw his article, just the headline earlier, and it said, what Captain Cook's landing should mean for us. You know, look, maybe he's all excited because he's just written a book. You know, but there's no way Peter Fitzsimmons can tell an Indigenous bloke what Captain Cook should mean for him, for example, and nor can Peter Fitzsimmons tell me um, what um, Captain Cook should mean for me either. You know, we can all make our own minds up on that. So I'm damn well not going to read his article. <laughs> End of episode. That has been my Captain Cook special on the very day that is the anniversary, the 250th anniversary, 2020, um, of Captain Cook's landing um, in, um, in 1770, you know, uh, which was just before American independence, you know. He died 
um, around about the same time as America got its independence. He never got to see how that all splashed out, you know what I mean? Um, yeah, uh, but it, it did, you know, American independence was a huge moment. And, but Captain Cook, he got hacked to death uh, just as that was all happening. So he didn't get to see how everything panned out. Uh, he didn't care. Yeah, he forgot about Australia by then anyway. He was off in Canada and around in Hawaii and everywhere. And down the South Pole, Captain Cook got around. He was an amazing navigator. He was one of the greatest navigators in the world. In fact, I think he was the greatest navigator in the world. And that's say, saying something given, you know, all the great seafarers of old from Carthage to Greece and all that sort of stuff. You know, Captain Cook was the best. He was the greatest of them all, in my opinion. I think he was. Oh, he had a clock, he had a clock on his ship too. That helped. You know, but John Harrison, was it John Harrison? I read that book too, the one on, you know, John Harrison and his magnificent clock, the first chronometer. Now that had, I'd better stop. See you later.